Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll hear from professional caregivers who were on the front lines of COVID-19 during the height of the pandemic in New York City. We have to have policies for how, how we provide care, uh, you know, what patients we take, what we do with them, all those processes. And, and this is, you know, again, these are not normal standards of care. This is a crisis. So the standards of care are different. A nurse practitioner who is a colonel in the Army Reserves talks about the two months she spent working in Queens. I thought it was an amazing chance to be able to help in a situation where you're watching on the news day after day just suffering. And a pair of intensive care nurses share their experience caring for COVID-19 patients in Long Island. All that and a visit from The Healing Muse right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we're looking back at the pandemic response and how some professional caregivers from Upstate helped out. We'll meet a nurse practitioner who deployed with the Army Reserves to a hospital in Queens. Then we'll hear from two nurses who volunteered at a hospital on Long Island. But first, we'll talk with a physician who oversaw a makeshift hospital in Manhattan. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The chief medical officer at the Javits Convention Center in New York City during this pandemic has been Dr. Christopher Tansky, who's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Upstate. He's talking with me via web conferencing software. So can you tell us how you were selected to oversee the care of COVID patients at the Javits Convention Center? So the um, uh, this facility is a state facility. It's run by the uh, uh, New York State Department of Health. And uh, it's been open for about three weeks. And the Department of Health uh, didn't really have a, a kind of a physician uh, leader here. So they had reached out uh, to me through Upstate uh, to serve as the chief medical officer down here. And uh, Upstate was uh, kind enough to uh, loan me out, so to speak. And so I'm down here um, uh, really representing the Department of Health as their chief medical officer uh, on the, uh, at Javits here uh, and uh, taking a, a little bit of a, a break from my uh, duties at Upstate. So had you ever been to Javits before for any, like, event of any sort, or is this your first time there? No, I've, I've, I've been here before. It's interesting you ask that. I, I don't think I'll ever be able to look at this place the same way again when I come back for our conference. It's definitely, uh, you know, I've never, I'm, uh, seeing it as a hospital, I'm reminded walking around of the conferences I've been to here. It's just very, uh, very unusual. Well, what does it look like? Can you describe it for us? Yeah, we have, uh, you know, Javits has, is an enormous con convention center. We, um, you know, one of the large exhibit halls uh, is, uh, several of them actually are, have been turned into a hospital. So uh, there's curtains set up, long rows of, of small cubicles that are bounded by curtains. Uh, there's, uh, they're set up into pods. So there's about 16 rooms in each section. Uh, and at the moment we have uh, about 15 or 16 of those sections set up. And uh, you know, uh, so it's all with white curtains uh, on the outside. There's no walls or anything. So uh, we've tried to do the best we can. Each room has a bed in it. Uh, and, uh, you know, an oxygen source that the patients need it and uh, perhaps a commode or something else for them. And uh, that's about it. It's very simplistic, uh, but it gets the job done. And so we're trying to uh, kind of take as many patients as possible. It does make it a little bit difficult to get around because everything looks the same. So when you get into the middle of it, you sometimes uh, lose your sense of orientation as to where you are because all the rooms look the same. Wow. So now did you, were you responsible for arranging beds and staffing and equipment or was that sort of, did the state health department sort of do that part of it? Well, uh, it, so it was done ahead of time, but it was actually done by the military. So, um, you know, being a disaster, the uh, state, uh, you know, the city needed help and the, the city asked the state and the state uh, requested that the military come set up its installation. And so, uh, you know, when this was set up, which was about, I think, three weeks ago, it was set up by the Army, the Navy, the Army Corps of Engineers, the U.S. Public Health Service, uh, really all, uh, all 
with them. And so they brought in medical units. There are hundreds of military personnel here. And they're still primarily kind of the ones providing care. 95% of the care being provided at this facility right now, maybe even more like 97 or 98%, is being provided by the military. Uh, there's a very, very, very little uh, small civilian component. So uh, the military, is that nurses, doctors, respiratory therapists? What is it all of that? Yeah, it's everything. Uh, the Army has, you know, medical units, uh, field hospitals that have been set up. They've all been brought in. There's a number of them here. Uh, as folks know, the U.S., uh, the Comfort ship is here as well. Uh, that's a little bit, not quite uh, exactly part of our organization here, but it's literally right outside. And so we have tons of uh, Army uh, physicians and nurses and medics and uh, the Navy as well and public health people all from, uh, you know, around the country that are here. And uh, this is what they do. They set up mobile field hospitals. And so you know, we're only just in the very, very, very early stages of trying to kind of start to get civilians in here to augment that response. Everything right now is done by the military. And so between the U.S., uh, the Comfort Ship and the Javits Center, are they, are you divided up between who is caring for COVID-infected patients and who is caring for patients who are not infected? At this point, we're only taking patients who are infected with COVID. So the, that was originally not the case, but right now both the Comfort and the Javits are only taking COVID patients. So all the patients here are positive. Uh, so we're essentially a COVID hospital. So how do the, do the patients come directly there from their home or do they go to a hospital first and then a hospital decides to send them to you? Yeah, so they, they, there's no direct admissions here. There's no ER here. So the patients are all transferred from other hospitals. So we have uh, a variety of ways that happens. We have uh, the, uh, hospitals and doctors can call in on the phone. We have very detailed, specific criteria about what type of patients we can accept here. And so that can be reviewed by phone. Uh, and uh, then the transfers can be arranged where the ambulance goes, picks the patients up and bring them here. The other thing is that we have direct representatives from all the hospitals here. So there's several major large hospital systems in New York City, and all of those hospital systems have sent groups of representatives here to the Javits Center. Matter of fact, they're all sitting uh, kind of in the same area that I am, and they spend all day long uh, talking with their colleagues at the hospitals, identifying patients and approving patients to be transferred. And so, uh, you know, we have uh, quotas and, and goals we set every day for how many patients we have and how many we want to take in and how many we're going to discharge. And uh, we're working very hard to offload the hospitals uh, and take patients here and at the comfort as well. So none of these patients are there to decide whether they have COVID. They, they all have, they've all tested positive. That's and correct. Yep, everyone here is positive for the virus. So they have varying levels of need or do you, I mean, do you have some intensive care patients? And We and do have some. Yep. Uh, there, th so this facility uh, originally was not designed to take intensive care patients, but if you think about it, uh, you know, you're going to have patients here that get worse suddenly. And so we need to have the capability to care for those. So very early in the process, we mobilized and set up a uh, intensive care unit here. Uh, I don't have the number in front of me. Last I looked, our intensive care unit had about 25 patients in it. Uh, right now, we have the capability to care for 48 ICU patients, and we can expand that if needed. And so those patients would be patients that were here and got worse, and so they would be moved to our ICU. We have ventilators there, all the things you would need. We don't try to, take, uh, to, to sort of take those patients. So if someone goes to the ICU, we would try to, uh, if, they, if we can't kind of quickly turn them around, to send them back to the hospital they came from. Uh, but we are running an ICU, and the Comfort does have an ICU as well. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Christopher Tansky. He's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Upstate, and he's the chief medical officer at the Javits Convention Center in New York City during this pandemic. So can you tell me what your day's like uh, as medical director there? Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, have been getting here about 7 or 7.30. Uh, we, you know, we're eating all three meals here pretty much. There's nowhere, you know, really no restaurants open in New York. So, um, you know, uh, I have to approve all medical policies here. So, again, this think of this as a hospital that just opened three weeks ago. And uh, so, you know, we have to have policies for how, you know, how we provide care, uh, you know, what patients we take, what we do with them. 
uh, all those processes. And, and this is, you know, again, these are not normal standards of care. This is a crisis. So the standards of care are different. So I'm reviewing a variety of those every day uh, that come from our military providers and improving those and uh, making new ones. We're also spending a significant amount of our time on, on finding civilian staff. So uh, we are in need of civilians uh, and we have uh, people here whose only job is to review uh, resumes and uh, candidates from the state. The state is identified. Uh, just today, we uh, brought in a group of 10 civilian doctors uh, to start working today to complement the military staff. So I have some folks reviewing that. I have to approve all of those people and uh, give them credentials and so forth. Uh, a good part of my day is spent down on the floor. Um, so I'm not caring for patients directly, but at least once, usually two or three times a day, I will go down onto the floor of the hospital itself uh, to talk to the providers, the nurses, to see the patients, to identify needs. Um, just today, we identified uh, from talking to some of the nurses that uh, we needed a way to keep track of the charts better. And so we're going to try to find some sort of a rack or something they can put the charts in. But there's no way to know that unless you go down there and uh, see and talk to the providers and the patients. So I do that at least once a day uh, and uh, usually more often. And then, uh, you know, there's um, I'm the liaison to the state. So a good part of my day is spent explaining to the state what's going on, uh, talking about budgeting and equipment and uh, you know, what are our plans moving forward? So I have to, uh, you know, be the eyes and ears for the state uh, here as well. Have there been any shortages of medication or equipment or protective gear? How's that running? I don't know that I would say there have been shortages. Uh, having said that, there are also certain, are, are, you know, major surpluses. Um, you know, there is a whole group here that uh, handles logistics and we get reports every day of the supply. So, um, you know, part of it is, is just having to order stuff to begin with. So, you know, the, this is a convention center and the, it was an empty hall. So, you know, you have to set up a hospital, you have to order beds. Uh, when I first got here, there were no call bells. So you think of something simple in a hospital like a call bell or you push the button if you need your nurse. We didn't have any. Huh. Uh, so we've had to find those and, uh, you know, we had to get monitoring equipment for patients. We had to get an oxygen supply. We had to get running water, bathrooms all of which we could separate, you know, for the patients only because they're positive for the virus. Um, PPE is an issue. I mean, we've had a good supply of PPE, uh, but, you know, every day we identify how much we've used and how many days we have left. And we, you know, when we identify, you know, today we identified a particular type of item that we were running a bit low on. So we had to work with the federal partners in the state to uh, find additional sources for that. So we haven't run out of anything, but, um, you know, uh, we don't have unlimited supplies as well. So you know, there's an entire logistics unit here who every day prepares a report of everything we have and how much we need. And, you know, when we need something, we, you know, go all out to find it. We look locally, we look at the state level, we look at it with our federal partners and uh, the process is tremendous. But you just, you know, when you need something, you have to find it and you have to get creative about it. Well, I don't want to get too technical, but I have read that there's uh, a little bit of a debate among physicians about treating COVID-19 patients as patients who have acute respiratory distress in sure. terms of whether they should be on ventilators or not? Is there, what are, what are your sort of your standing orders there at the Javits Center? Uh, so again, you know, we um, are not specifically looking at that. I mean, you know, we don't generally take patients and transfer who are already on ventilators, although we can. We took four last night in a particular situation where a hospital really needed us to take them. Uh, you know, we're trying to be contemporary and use, uh, you know, evidence-based uh, medicine. I've been in touch with some of the colleagues back at Upstate. Um, we are not doing clinical trials here. So medications that people might get in clinical trials, we don't have access to. We're using some of the common medications to treat it that people have been using. If someone needs to be put on a ventilator, we're doing that. Uh, again, we would try to work to get that patient back to the hospital. Uh, but, you know, we can certainly keep them on ventilators here. We've not had any, you know, uh, there, there's no any nothing about rationing or anything like that. Everything everyone is getting, you know, as much care as appropriate. Um, and we're trying to, you know, and it's nice when in this situation because you have providers from all around the country and different walks of life, and so you can really have some good discussions about what are you doing and what are you seeing and what's the best way to treat these patients. Has anything surprised you about how this disease affects people? Uh, I mean, yeah, I think you know. You, um, what we have seen in some cases is, um, 
you know, people will get a mild or a, a minor or mild illness. They might have a little bit of a cough. Uh, they might be in the hospital with a little bit of a lower oxygen level, but really not doing all that badly. You know, certainly not on a ventilator, able to kind of function normally. And sometimes you see after five, six, seven days, they just, uh, they, they, they get a bit worse. And, uh, you know, you think that things are going better and they suddenly get worse. We haven't seen that in every case, but, uh, you know, I've seen that here as well as back at Upstate before I came down here. And so that's a, a little unusual for me. Uh, so we, we are trying to watch these patients very closely uh, and sort of keep an eye on them and see, uh, you know, how their course is. Uh, but that's some unusual things we've seen from time to time. Well, I imagine you'll be bringing all sorts of um, lessons learned to, you know, back to Upstate. Um, yeah some point. How difficult has it been for you to be away from your family? Uh, it's been tough. Uh, I wasn't uh, even, <clears throat> excuse me, I wasn't even home to begin with. Um, I had uh, about a week before I came down here, I left my home and moved into a hotel in Syracuse because I was uh, afraid of uh, bringing the virus home to my family. I have a wife and a four-year-old daughter and a six-month-old daughter. So I had already been gone. So I essentially moved from one hotel down, down to here. And, uh, you know, who really knows, uh, you know, when this is going to be over and when I'll, uh, you know, be able to get back to Syracuse and even then when I'll be able to get back home. Uh, so, you know, you try to chat and have FaceTime and so forth, but uh, it's difficult. Uh, just because you're of the exposure potential, when you do come back home, you'll probably have to be quarantined for a while too, right? Yeah, those those guidelines are kind of in process. Um, we... Um, you know, depending on who you ask, there's different guidelines about 14 days or seven days. We're fortunate here to have some very sophisticated testing, uh, different than you'll see in any, anywhere else that we've uh, been able to get our hands on. So uh, we, we might not have to do quite that much. We're thinking about what we're going to do for all the providers when they leave. And, uh, we might be able to shorten that a little bit based on some of the uh, kind of new uh, testing that we have access to here. But it's a topic of discussion every day. We're trying to figure out what to do uh, when everybody here goes home. And uh, yeah, I think there will be a quarantine period, but we're trying to see if we can get that down a little bit. Uh, we're not quite sure yet. Well, so is the military uh, providing all of the meals at the Javits Center? No, uh, we are using catering. Uh, the um, you know we are trying to do our best to support the local industry. So. Uh, you know, we're uh, using catering to get food here from uh, local vendors and so forth. Uh, and uh, again, you know, most of the staff here are eating three meals here a day as well because we're here so much. So uh, we are trying to support, you know, the local eateries and food places. And so they bring food in from different places every day. And uh, we're trying to do, you know, work with that, uh, some sort of similar thing for patients. So uh, military is not providing the food. We're trying to use uh, local sources for that. And then you're staying nearby? At a, are you able to walk to your where your lodging is? Yes. Yeah, so uh, there's obviously, as you might imagine, with the hundreds of people down here, where you know there's a variety of hotels. Uh, the one we're at is two blocks away, so it's a very quick walk in the morning and at night, uh, which is good because again, most of us are spending you know more than twelve hours a day here. And so uh, when you head out, uh, it's a very uh, couple block walk back to the hotel, uh, which is nice given uh, that you know, occasionally you have to come back at night for some sort of emergency or as well. So it's good to be close. Wow. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Thank you to Dr. Christopher Tansky. He's the chief medical officer at the Javits Convention Center in New York City and an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, nurse practitioner and Army Reserve Colonel Patricia Goodyear tells about her deployment to Queens. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Colonel Patricia Goodyear spent two months caring for patients with COVID-19 at Queens Central Hospital as part of the U.S. Army Reserves. She's a nurse practitioner at Upstate University Hospital, and now that she's returned to Syracuse, I'm talking with her about her experiences. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Patricia. Good morning, Amber. So how did you become part of the Army Reserves? Um, I joined the Army Reserves back when I I was 23 in 1988. Um, 
most of my my family members had been in the military at some point, so it was always something I wanted to do. So can you tell us about the tours of duty you've done before this most recent activation? I was activated back in 2002 for um, uh, Enduring Freedom, um, Iraqi Freedom Campaign for about a year. Um, that was my only deployment. The other um, opportunities I've had have been mostly doing readiness activities in other communities in the United States. We do IRTs, which are called, um, which are innovative readiness activities, and they go into a community and provide care for the constituents for free. We usually bring uh, dentists and pharmacists and opticians and providers, and we've gone to Louisiana, Arkansas. I've also gone to Haiti after the hurricane um, back in 2008, or no, I'm sorry, 2000. So, and then this most recent one. So what was your reaction when you found out you would be going to Queens Central Hospital? How did that all come about? Um, I was um, not really given any information about where I was going. Um, I was simply informed that I was being mobilized um, for the campaign against COVID. Um, we were all brought to Utica to begin with, and then um, parts of our group were divided off into other places to form 85-man task force that they had set up, um, urban task force to deal with this um, so disease. So how, how much notice did they give you? you two had, days. You, so you had two days notice to get ready to be mobilized and be gone. Yes, two days. When you heard that it was to to be part of the COVID um, response, were you afraid of being exposed to the virus? No, I, I really wasn't because working in healthcare in an acute setting, you frequently are exposed to things that, um, you know, are contagious. So you use, you know, your PPE, your masks, your hand washing, your, you know, alcohol sanitizer, you use your methods to deal with that, to stay safe. And honestly, I thought it was an amazing chance to be able to help in a situation where you're watching on the news day after day, you know, a city within our state just suffering with this disease and needing healthcare providers. I also felt like for me, because I have five children, I didn't have to worry about bringing it home every night to my kids. So that was also a relief. So, um, yeah, I was, I, I wasn't, won't say I was excited because it is hard to leave home and leave your children, but I was, I was glad that I was able to help. So how did you prepare your kids for your absence? Um, my children have always known me to be in the military. Um, they are young. I've had them later in life. So my oldest is 12. My youngest is six. And so being a single mom, military has always been part of our lives. They, um, they know that I'm in the army and why I'm in the army. We talk about it. And as part of being in the military as a single parent, you have to have a care plan in place for your children. So I had already established that my children would go stay with my friend if I ever needed to leave um, for any reason. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Patricia Goodyear. She's a nurse practitioner at Upstate and a colonel in the U.S. Army Reserves. And we're talking about the two months she spent in Queens helping to care for patients with COVID-19. So talk to me about your job at Queens Central Hospital. 
Now, did they send you along with other Army colleagues to the same hospital? Yes. Um, I was assigned into Task Force 1 as a uh, nurse practitioner. And when we arrived in New York, they this was just a dynamic, fluid operation. So they realized they didn't need our asset at um, the Javits Center. So they it took at least a couple of days to get the contract set up so that we could actually go into the local hospitals. So they sent initially just the providers to Queens and then and the nurses did go over to the Javits. And then once the Javits wound down and the numbers decreased, they brought the nurses over with us as well. So um, we weren't really given a lot of information other than we, were, we arrived, we came in, we met their staff. And there was a lot of um, information passing back and forth of what our skill sets were to know where they could best utilize us. Um, fortunately for me, I um, do have uh, acute care, critical care background. So they put me in the MICU, the medical ICU, which um, had some very severe needs at that time in the MICU um, due to the fact that uh, quite a few of their staff, provider and nurses, um, contracted COVID. Uh, this was primarily because there was such an epidemic and there wasn't a knowledge of that epidemic in the beginning that if the patient didn't come in with symptoms of COVID, they, the staff didn't take the precautions because it wasn't known at that time how massive the epidemic was, the pandemic in Queens. So they exposed themselves without realizing it. And then the, several attendings were out, nurses were out. So when we arrived, um, one of the fortunate pieces is that they use Epic as their medical um, system and we use Epic. So that made my transition a lot easier because I knew how to use the charting system. So were you uh, providing hands-on care uh, for patients with COVID-19 as a nurse practitioner? Yes, I was assigned um, to the team um, with an attending and a couple residents. And we worked 12 to 14 hours a day, six days a week. Um, and we rounded and, you know, provided, you know, interventions and care and um, a lot of the interventions like proning require not just nursing staff, but provider staff as well. So um, we were involved throughout the whole day with, the, with our patients. What, what is proning? Proning um, is where the patient is actually placed on their stomach um, face down because um, uniquely with the lungs, you, when you're laying on your back, the circulation and the aeration only occurs primarily on your anterior lung. But when you prone, you actually have more surface that gets aerated. Therefore, you get better perfusion. So um, proning has been used in the medical community for severe um, ARDS, you know, um, traumatic lung disease in the past. And it was one of a number of things we would use to try to help the patients be able to oxygenate better. Um, so what you would do is you'd have to use several staff and turn them onto their abdomen, make sure that their limbs are um, correctly aligned and that they have the, most of them were intubated. So you wanted to make sure you protected their airway so they didn't extubate as you're trying to turn them. I mean, it sounds easy like to put yourself on your stomach, but if you've ever encountered a patient in the ICU with feeding tubes and central lines and art lines and 
intimation too. It's a challenge to keep all the wires connect, you know, in place where you want them by do when you flip them on their stomach. Did you have patients that you saw um, recover from COVID-19 and go home? I wish I could say that I did. Um, no, not in my two months there. Um, I had uh, a few patients that I thought were going to do okay. Um, in particular, there was a patient that we had extubated who was very young um, in his 30s. And after he was extubated, he seemed to be doing well, got transferred out of the ICU. Um, and when I went back into the records in Epic to look for a particular patient, a, a different patient, his name actually showed up on the group of names of past charts I was in. And it said discharge to morgue. And it just, it, I couldn't believe it because I, you know, you didn't hear about patients after they left your unit because there was such a large volume. Um, and when I looked at the record, um, basically, we knew he had a, a clot in his lung and we were treating it, but the medication we used to treat it, the blood thinner caused bleeding in his abdomen. So they had stopped the blood thinner. And then he had another very large clot to his lungs and, and um, expired. So well, that was quite a shock to me. And you said this gentleman was in his 30s. Correct. So I, I, I think people have an idea that this is a disease of the elderly, and, and that isn't, wasn't your experience, right? No, actually, um, it wasn't. It, most of the patients I treated were young. Wow. And... Um, I, it was it was very hard for me because a lot of um, I've worked in trauma before this and we don't normally lose patients. You don't have a large volume of deaths in the medical in in general in my practice in the past. So to have so many patients expire. It was, it's like caregiver fatigue almost like, you know, and then you're listening to the community out there at large, believing that this doesn't even exist. And yet you're watching day after day as people die from it, young people, um, people in their 30s and 40s, not, yes, there were elderly people that came in, but a lot of times they were already uh, do not resuscitate because they came from like a nursing home. So we made them comfortable and they were expectant. And that was a little easier to understand. Well, as someone who has literally been on the front lines of this pandemic, what do you think society is doing right in its response? And, and what do we need to be doing that we're not doing? I think good hand-washing, um, hand sanitizer, wearing a mask, and social distancing does a lot more than people give it credit for. I mean, we had 85 in my um, task force, and then there were other ta another task force nearby, and none of us seroconverted and caught COVID. And we were involved in it daily for over two months and the consistent thing that was universal amongst all of us was social distancing wearing a mask using good hand washing and hand sanitizer i mean um and i think that it's i think that it's sad that there's people out there that don't believe that that is effective or they feel that um, it somehow takes away from them to protect themselves and other people by doing that. Yeah. Well, I am appreciative of you sharing your experience. Thank you so much to nurse practitioner and Army Reserves Colonel Patricia Goodyear. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, 
HealthLink on Air. Stay with Upstate's HealthLink on Air to hear about nurses who volunteered to care for COVID-19 patients on Long Island. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. When colleagues at Stony Brook University Hospital asked for help caring for patients during the coronavirus pandemic, dozens of nurses and pharmacists from Upstate University Hospital volunteered for the mission. Talking with me by web conferencing software are nurses Emery House and Rachel Carnicelli. Welcome to both of you to HealthLink on Air. Good morning, this is Emery. Hi, this is Rachel. Thank you for having us. Well, let me ask each of you, um, sort of just tell us why you were willing to volunteer for this, because it seems sort of dangerous. So for us, it wasn't as much of a matter of why, it's more of a why not. We found this to be a mutually beneficial situation for the staff at Stony Brook, as well as us. We knew that they were in pretty desperate need for help. And it's certainly not going to hurt us to go and learn more about this disease. So we thought it would be good for everybody overall. It was definitely an experience that as healthcare workers, we could take a part of, which is um, something that not everyone gets to do. So it's nice that we have this opportunity. Can you talk to me about what it was like leaving upstate? Because you went out in kind of in a caravan altogether, right? Yes, there was a variety of emotions that day. I think the best way to describe things for me was surprising. We knew that we needed to show up to the hospital to get, um, they were sending us with some PPE, some masks and gowns and whatnot. We did not know that we were gonna have the type of support there. So it was surprising. It was a bit overwhelming as we didn't anticipate that. But I think also overall, it was very reassuring how much support we had in this process. Yeah, there were there was a big crowd there cheering you on. And was there a police escort for quite a ways? Yes, I believe the escort ended at Cortland. So it was quite a ways. It was very nice. Neat. Well, now I'm talking to you. You're still at Stony Brook. So can yeah. you kind of tell me, and this I, I believe is your your day off sort of, but um, can you sort of describe for me what your days are like? Yes, um, so we're working the same type shifts that we do at home. We're both day shift, 12 hour day nurses. So the days are 12 and a half to 13 hour days and they are extremely busy. So tell me, um, Emery, what sort of nursing do you do at Upstate? What unit do you work on? And and Rachel also. And then are you doing sort of the same unit there? So I do the critical care support pool. So I float amongst all of the critical care units at Upstate. Um, and although I'm working on what's considered the cardiothoracic ICU at Stony Brook, Almost everything has been converted to what we reference as a MICU because a lot of the COVID patients are what we consider MICU patients. So is MICU so, medical ICU? Correct. Okay. And then I work on the, one of the medical ICUs at Upstate, and I'm also working on a medical ICU at Stony Brook. So the environment and the patient care is very similar to what I'm used to. It's just kind of getting used to working with new people and their equipment slightly different. That's kind of been the biggest struggle. All right. Well, so are you're taking care of patients with COVID or do you also have patients that are not infected? Um, the unit that I'm on is all COVID positive patients. And same for me. So how sick are they? Are, are, are all of your patients on ventilators to be in the ICU? Are they on a ventilator? So this differs a little bit on the unit that I'm on. Basically, the attending doctor kind of directs the care of how we're going to manage these patients. And that's the same at home or here. My attending here likes to have his patients intubated. Um, and these patients are 
some of the sickest people that you can imagine. Okay. Then the, the unit that I'm on, they're trying to prevent intubation. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them have been ending up intubated. So our each of our floors are trying different forms of care, but it seems as if the patients are all kind of ending up with the same treatment plans. What are the age range of your patients? That's, that's one of the surprises. Um, I think that a lot of people, ourselves included, when COVID came about, we considered it pretty similar to the flu. Like, okay, this is a virus. People who are immunocompromised or elderly are going to be more susceptible. This is not selective whatsoever. I have patients that are my age. Um, we do have elderly patients as well, but I've seen patients in their 20s up to their 70s with this. And, and that's pretty much the same. Are they patients that have pre-existing conditions or are they previously like healthy patients? That's another surprise is that we would expect a, a laundry list of past medical history for these patients, but that this does not exist. Oh, I don't know if some component of that is that maybe some of these patients haven't been diagnosed with whatever conditions they may have had. I don't know if maybe they haven't sought out health care to know that they have pre-existing conditions, but many times we're hearing these patients have no known medical history. What we've seen on the news is that uh, people with COVID generally have a fever, cough, aches. Is, is that what you're seeing? So a lot of the patients that I've been seeing are coming in with fevers and coughs. Um, but there are many that are coming in for things not related to that, um, like diabetic issues, and then they get swabbed and they're COVID positive. So it almost seems like it doesn't necessarily matter what you come in with. There's a lot of people in the community that are just positive with COVID. What about in terms of treatment? I mean, you've mentioned ventilators, but are there medications or what else is being done to help them while they're in the hospital? A lot of the medical management on my end is trying to create the proper balance with the ventilator and the medications needed to keep them hemodynamically stable. So I'm on the unit, again, of most intubated patients. Like everybody on my unit is already intubated. And because of that, because we want the ventilator to optimally work, we have the patients pretty well sedated, which in this case takes a lot of medication, but sometimes you give one med and then you come up with a, a problem. So if you're, you're sedating them too much, you might have changes in their vital signs and you might have to give them another drip to fix this problem or that problem. And then if they start fighting the vent, then we have to go up on the sedative. It's, it's very difficult to find the right balance. And that's what we tend to spend most of our time doing is figuring out the right balance of vent setting and drips. Keep the patient comfortable enough to tolerate the vent, but allow the vent to do the work for them until they can hopefully recover. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with nurses Emery House and Rachel Carnicelli. They're two uh, of the Upstate nurses who volunteered to travel to Stony Brook to help care for patients during the coronavirus pandemic. So I'm assuming that you're wearing uh, the PPE, personal protective equipment, from the beginning to the end of your shift. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Is that difficult to do? I would say it, it's not difficult to do. I mean, it does get kind of hot sometimes when you're in your gown. We wear an N95 mask at all times with a surgical mask on top of it. Um, and it does get hot and uncomfortable, but for me, the hardest part is remembering to put it on in the sense that if something emergent happens, you have to stop, get dressed in your PPE before you can go in the room, and that can get kind of frustrating. Rachel is on what's considered a clean unit, so all of their rooms are negative pressure, so they have the ability to take off some of the equipment in between patients. I do not. I work on a dirty unit, so I am in all of that all day. Okay. Which is not fun. Well, and if I understand correctly, there I mean there's no 
visitors. So you're not interacting with the patient's family members, right? Correct. Or, or maybe are you in, are you talking to them in other methods? They're not there in person, but are you able to communicate with them? Um, we too are able to call them, and they do have some ability to like FaceTime them or Zoom with them. So if they want, they can see their loved one, um, which I've done a couple times with families. Well, let me ask you this: What have you learned that you'll be bringing back to Upstate? I guess. Um, one thing is that these patients come in typically with respiratory issues, but by the time that they've been through the hospital, they usually have more than just respiratory issues. They develop kidney issues, neurological issues, and there's a lot that goes into it. So just being aware of the kind of their full body, not just the respiratory component. I think that that's a really good way to put it because again, as we all kind of viewed this virus at first to be a respiratory disorder, but we're realizing kind of multi-system organ dysfunction going on here. These patients are a lot more fragile than anybody that I've ever taken care of. Something as simple as turning and repositioning them really completely plummets their ability to breathe for about 30 minutes following doing so. So we have to really handle these patients with care. And then also something that we've been doing down here is clustering care. They try to have you go in the room less frequently and get all of the things done that you need to do so that A, we can minimize our exposure, B, we can minimize the use of PPE, and C, allow the patients to get a little bit more rest in between times that we go in to do what we need to do. Interesting. Well, is there anything else that has surprised you either about the patients or the staff or the disease in your time there? Um, like we said, the patients being a lot younger and otherwise relatively healthy has been a bit of a surprise. Well, what are your accommodations like? So we're staying at a Holiday Inn very close to the hospital, which is nice. It's a quick drive to work. And is that, are you getting all of your meals at the hotel or do you, is the hospital feeding you during the day? Well, both. Okay. I answer both. Um, we do have a food stipend provided, a daily food stipend that we get. But I will say the community down here, the support that they have for the nursing staff is unbelievable. Food is being sent to the hospital every single day for the staff. Wow. That's so on nice days to off have... like today, we'll be ordering food. But when we're at work, there's usually food already sent in. That's nice not to have to worry about that then. Yeah. So how difficult was it for you to separate from your families to travel? So in a sense of separating from family, both Rachel and I went to Africa a few months back. And that was a two-week voyage where we actually really couldn't talk to our family due to service issues and whatnot. So I personally don't find this to be as bad because we can still, you know, FaceTime our family at night or on our days off. So, yes, it's, I mean, it's not fun to be away from your family, but we all kind of have to be away from everybody right now anyway. So calling from a hotel room rather than my own bedroom, really. You mentioned your trip to Africa. Was that a medical mission? It, it was a community and healthcare mission. We did a lot of community development and building projects, so we also did some healthcare education while we were down there. So you're all working together and staying together in the same hotel, but it's not just nurses and doctors that you're with up there, correct? Correct. We are working with an excellent team at Stony Brook. And unfortunately, I think that some of the recognition does go unnoticed. A lot of focus is placed on nurses and doctors. And don't get me wrong, I understand that very much. But I will say a couple of other disciplines that really deserve some acknowledgement would be our respiratory therapist and our housekeeping staff. Vital, vital members of the team, it sounds like. They definitely are. They keep the rooms clean, open, and ready for more patients to come in. And they're in the rooms oftentimes just as much as we are. So I guess for everyone, uh, no one's experienced a pandemic like this before. And in nursing, this is you haven't seen anything like this, correct? Does it compare correct. to anything that you, you've uh, dealt with in the past? No. 
You mentioned- I couldn't have even imagined something like that. Thank you to nurses Emory House and Rachel Carnicelli. They're two of the upstate nurses who volunteered to travel to Long Island to help care for patients during the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Jane Shapiro's latest book of poetry is called Let the Wind Push Us Across. It's published by Antrim House. She asks us to reconsider our use of the expression status quo, which grows in this short poem to dramatic heights. Prayer for the status quo. Bless the state in which we find ourselves as we are. Praise the R, the in, out, in of breath. Behold the breath, the you, the me, the IV drip, 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 and fear. Seek grace in the fear, the state in which we find ourselves here, as things are, as we are, inside this wreckage of now. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll look at the upcoming flu season. If you missed any of today's show, or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org, or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Thank you.